We are um, excited to begin now. We're just in our third week, and we're continuing unpacking our overarching theme and series of exploring the one another commands in the New Testament as really the pathways for us to live in light um, of the supernatural incarnate community of, of Christ as his body. And uh, today, um, we're really excited to continue unpacking that, and, and a, a particular one another that's going to be emphasized is Galatians 6, 2, which, which says, as to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And really flowing out of the, the chief, the foundation, the fountain from all the uh, one another's, from, that all that one another's flow from, which is to love one another as Christ has loved us. And on Wednesday of this week, just a, just a brief kind of overview, um, we're not going to be, no one's going to be meeting in this room. It's our living space chapel, so they'll be uh, organized and, and meeting in spaces according to your living section, including commuters. And so those spaces uh, for chapel on Wednesday are on the rock, and we'll have them up on posters throughout uh, campus as well. Um, and then we're back in here on Friday for uh, Praise Chapel. Um, and then in between all of that, just a reminder, Tuesdays we meet a NAS chapel, Fresh Encounters Prayer Chapel, praying out of the scriptures together. And then every Wednesday and Thursday, we have various alternative chapels for you to choose from. And uh, we have some really good ones coming up this week, so be sure to check that out. So for this morning, though, we have uh, uh, one of our very own, uh, one of our very own professors who's been here for a number of years and who many of you know and recognize, Dr. Melissa Mork speaking. And she's the professor and chair of the Department of Psychology and Criminal Justice here at Northwestern. She's a certified humor professional, grief coach, and author of the book, Navigating Grief with Humor. Dr. Mork teaches a variety of undergrad and graduate courses in the areas of psychopathology, counseling, and professional ethics. Recently, Melissa ventured into the world of TikTok, where she provides 60-second videos on mental health and grief, and she currently has 40,000 followers and 6 million views. Wow. But she believes this success can be attributed, however, to her refusal to twerk on camera. And she's agreed that if you pay close enough attention, she might just twerk at the end of her message today. Um, no promises, but please, would you join me in welcoming Dr. Melissa Mork? And uh, would you please join me in praying for her um, as she speaks to us? So Father in heaven, we indeed want to continue to declare and proclaim your greatness. And we want to thank you so much for the gift of Dr. Melissa Mork to this institution and to us now in this time in chapel. We pray, God, that you would give her a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you fill her afresh and would you work in us afresh that we would receive your word through her to our hearts and minds that we would be further transformed into the image of Christ. We love you and we thank you for loving us first. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Justin. Hi, everybody. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I'm really honored and flattered. Thank you for having me and for asking me to be here. So I want to start with a story. It was the day after Christmas, a couple of months after my husband had died, and the kids and I were violently ill. We'd had a great Christmas, but the next day, it was, it was awful. And I'd like to say it was stomach flu, but considering how I cook, it may have been food poisoning. But we're going to go with the stomach flu scenario right now. That's my narrative. I'm sticking to it. So it was really bad. And the dog had gotten into something he wasn't supposed to eat. And so he was having diarrhea all over the house. Yes. And 
Our stupid cat had eaten the rubber tip off of a Nerf dart, and it had lodged in his small intestine. I didn't know this yet, but he had a bowel obstruction, and so his tummy was hungry, and he would eat, and then he would vomit it up because he couldn't digest it. And so it was literally a very crappy day. It was an awful day. And I was overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. I was so sick, you guys. I was so sick. So I did what any basic middle-aged white lady is going to do, and I posted a Facebook status update about it. <laughs> right? I said, "This is what's going on. Prayers, please. I'm going to go take a nap." And I did. I went and took a nap. A couple hours later, I got up. I stumbled into the kitchen to make myself a cup of tea, and realized. <laughs> I had left the front door unlocked. I had posted a, fa a Facebook status update that I was going to be down for the count, and I left my front door unlocked. So I walk into my kitchen and I discover that people had let themselves into my house and left cases of toilet paper, stacks of paper towel, towers of Clorox cleanup wipes. There was a case of Campbell's chicken noodle soup. There was Imodium. There was Pepto Bismol. There were saltine crackers. There. Those big bottles of Seven Up, people showed up. Galatians six two, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. I get. We all get that. But so fulfills the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, I went back. I searched, and of course, it's the great commandment in Mark twelve twenty eight. So they asked him, which commandment is the most important? Of all, and Jesus answered, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength." And the second is this: love your neighbor as yourself. He said, "There is no other commandment greater than these." So bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You fulfill the greatest commandment. So I want to talk about that today in the context of mental illness. And I'm going to get up on some soapboxes, you guys. So just tolerate my intensity, smile and nod, and I hope you get something from it. But here's the deal: I was physically sick. The kids and I were physically sick, and people showed up to bear our burdens. The church shows up when somebody's physically sick. But when you are mentally sick, when you have a mental illness, the church doesn't show up. Crickets. Why is it if I have the stomach flu they show up, but if I have depression they don't? It's one word. The stomach flu doesn't have stigma attached to it. So I'm going to talk to those of you in the room today who have ADHD, who've been told that you're naughty, that you're disobedient, that you're out of control, thoughtless. But I want to tell you, it is not a character flaw. You are neurodivergent, and it is just because your brain works differently. Than other people's brains. I also want to talk to those of you who have anxiety. You fear maybe something specific or something in general. Maybe you fear everything, but it stops you in your tracks. It paralyzes you, and you feel like you're going crazy. I also want to talk to those of you who are on the autism spectrum, and you feel like everybody got the rules on how to make friends and how to fit in and how to do things. Everybody got that list of rules, but you never learned the rules, and so you feel like. You don't know how to make friends. You don't know how to get along with people. You feel lonely and isolated, and left out. I want to talk to those of you in the room who have OCD, PTSD, eating disorders, or schizophrenia, where you have these intrusive, unwanted thoughts that make it so hard to focus on anything else. 
And I want to talk to those of you who have physical symptoms from your mental illness and your body suffers because your brain fights you at every turn and you're just exhausted from the fight. I'm talking to all of you and also to those of you with depression. And you're so tired. You're so numb and you want to thrive, but it feels like you're moving through wet cement. I'm talking to you too, especially those of you who feel like the fight isn't even worth fighting anymore. I'm talking to you. And there are some people in this room who've never had a mental illness, and I want you to count yourself as blessed, but I'm talking to you too because I want you to know what kind of spiritual struggle the rest of us endure. So we're going to talk again about stigma. In the church, there is stigma around anxiety, but not asthma. And there is shame around depression, but not diabetes. We would never tell somebody with a bee sting allergy that it's their fault and that they need more faith. And we don't dismiss people with heart issues and tell them that there are a lot of verses in the Bible about the heart, so they just should not be sick. And we would never dare tell someone with terminal cancer that they just need to spend more time with God because trust me when I tell you, they probably already are. We would never tell somebody with a physical ailment that it's their fault or that it's a sin issue. But in the church, we malign people with mental illness and we malign their faith when we suggest that their mental illness is a spiritual issue, that it's a sin problem. You see, this is what causes the stigma in the church. I'm afraid to tell you when I'm hurting because you're gonna tell me it's because of my sin. That's where the stigma is and that's why I can't let you bear my burden is because of the stigma and the shame of it. But you know what? I can literally locate your ADHD on a SPECT scan of your brain. And I can see on a functional MRI when somebody with multiple personalities, dissociative identity disorder, when they're shifting between personalities, we can see that on a functional MRI. We can treat chronic depression that is not medication uh, is not treated well with medication, it actually can be treated well with deep brain stimulation. And we know that anxiety disorders are caused by a number of physiological causes like neurohormonal imbalances and post-traumatic stress syndrome and overactive amygdala and head injuries. And just like diabetes or heart disease or bee sting or asthma, many of these mental illnesses are treated well with a combination of medication and behavioral interventions. This is my point. Mental illness is illness. Say this with me. Mental illness is illness. Oh, for goodness sakes. It's just illness. It is not self-centeredness. It is not self-indulgence. It is not sinfulness. It is not a spiritual flaw. You are not spiritually flawed if you have anxiety or depression or the ADHD, or OCD, or eating disorders, and on and on and on. Now I know some of you are gonna say, but isn't all illness the result of sin? Of course it is. Yes, it is the result of the, the fall. Yes. But is my depression the result of my own personal sin? More often, my depression is the result of having been sinned against. We have a genetic predisposition perhaps to develop a particular disorder or illness, maybe heart disease or alcoholism or depression, and then there is a stressor in our life that kind of kicks us into that disorder. 
That's where mental illness comes from. It isn't your own necessarily personal unrooted sin. And to, and to suggest that, I think, is possibly spiritually abusive. Ultimately, we just have to look at it as illness. So here's the deal. If someone tells you that your mental illness is all in your head, you tell them, of course it is. If we ran a brain scan, you'd be able to see it. And if they tell you it's a faith issue and you need to quit giving in to your anxiety or your depression, nod your head and smile and invite them to quit giving in to their poor eyesight. Invite them to have more faith and take off their glasses and drive home. All right, so I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. When I was a junior in college, fall semester, I was taking this class called the Theology of Suffering. It was a fantastic class. It was so good. We had to write in a journal every week and submit it to the professor. And my professor was Dina Candler. She was also the campus chaplain. She was amazing and the perfect person to teach this class because she was, she was smart, she was cool, she told the truth, she was straightforward but kind, she was a, I'm still friends with her, I love this woman. But, so we had to keep this journal about our thoughts about God and suffering and we had to submit it every Friday for her to review. And so I had this Mickey Mouse for my Theology of Suffering journal. I had a Mickey Mouse journal and I would pontificate and wax poetic about the character of God and the theology of suffering and it was all just intellectual curiosity. Who is God in our suffering and in our pain? And then, the week of midterms, my mom was killed in a car crash. And I watched my six big brothers decimated by it. And my sister would call me every night, crying sobs of despair. And we watched my dad sink into this deep chasm of grief. And he actually died of a broken heart from this. And me, <laughs> you guys, I was angry. I was livid, I was furious with God because suddenly I had skin in this game now. This wasn't just an intellectual curiosity. I needed to know who was this God that stood in the ditch and watched my mother die. I was so angry. I took that Mickey Mouse journal and I started to write out my rage and my fury and my anger and my questions that God needed to answer. And I stapled the pages together so Dr. Candler couldn't read them, and I took, that, I took that journal and I threw it on her desk and I glared at her. And she just nodded knowingly because she knew now it was just personal. It was personal. I have spent the last many years really looking at the scriptures to see who is this God in my suffering. And you guys, I've been through some stuff. Who is God in our suffering? So that day after Christmas, remember vomit everywhere, poop everywhere, it was a bad day. Next day we were feeling a little bit better. Somebody had left a carpet cleaner, like pet, pet carpet cleaner, so everything was good. The next day we were stronger. I actually was able to take my daughter across town for a photo shoot. But on our way back, we got caught in a really bad storm. So we're driving up 
35W northbound at the 36 split, and we're coming around that corner, and we hit this patch of ice, and our car starts to spin out of control, and we're just, I mean, no control whatsoever, and we end up in the ditch, backwards, facing oncoming traffic, the car has died, the engine has cut out, I don't know what kind of damage has happened, I checked to make sure she's okay, she's okay, I'm okay, and I said, okay, we just need to call your dad. And then I remembered he'd been gone for three months and I didn't have anybody to call. So we cried for a minute and then I pulled out my phone, I found a tow truck, called, and he was like, yeah, there are just crashes all over town, it's gonna be a while for me to get to your car, so leave the keys in the car, I'll get it when I can, I'll bring it to your service station, you should probably find somebody to drive you home. So I called my friend, and she was so sweet. She was like, oh, thank you for letting me help you. And she got in her warm SUV and drove down four-wheel drive to pick us up. And we get in the car, and the first thing she says is, wow, Melissa, you have really been through a lot lately. What have you done to deserve this? <laughs> thank you, friend of Job. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I hoped she was kidding, but it still felt shamefully familiar, and I wondered how many other people were wondering exactly the same thing. What did I do to deserve this? And that is kind of a crappy theology, but does God really give us what we deserve? Like, do I have depression because I deserve it? Did my, my former TA, who had such bad OCD that she would scrub her hands until they bled, did she deserve that? Um, do you deserve that uncontrolled panic that paralyzes you and stops you from doing anything you feel like you should be doing? I don't think we get what we deserve. Actually, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with him that it should leave me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you hear that? Nowhere does he say, I got this thorn in my flesh and I deserved it. He said, I have this thorn in the flesh, and God does not remove it because it is an opportunity to display his glory and power. There have been times, though, you guys, where I have felt like my life has been so hard, I'm somehow being punished for something. I feel like the suffering is so intense, maybe there's a sin in me that I haven't identified or confessed or repented of. So am I being punished? Let's just look at Jesus' words directly. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and one of his disciples asked him, Lord, who sinned, him or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so the glory of God could be made manifest in his life. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that 
God's glory could be made manifest in his life. Why then, good boys and girls who love Jesus, why, oh why, would we have the audacity to suggest to somebody else that they are somehow spiritually defective or flawed in their faith because they have a disease in their brain? Sometimes someone will say, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Really? Where's that written? Because I've read the book of Lamentations so heavy with grief, it's hard to read. And I have read the Psalms over and over and over again where, Paul, where David is crying out in depression and despair. And even, you know, Jesus on the cross is saying, what? He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And nowhere in the four Gospels does any of the women reach up and pat him on his bloody foot and say, there, there, Jesus, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. It's not in there. In fact, 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul wrote, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure it so that we despaired of life itself. Did you hear that? Their suffering was so bad they despaired of life itself. They wanted to die. Indeed, he says, we felt we were under the sentence of death in order that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Does God cause our suffering? Does he do it to punish us? Does he give us what we deserve? Is this the God you believe in? Because I'll tell you about the God I believe in. I believe that on earth, Jesus' ministry was substantially made up of miracles. He performed miracles. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame walk. He raised people from the dead. He healed the sick. I believe that if sickness and death were part of the kingdom of God, he would not have fought so hard against it. He would have chosen different kinds of miracles to perform. So based on the ministry of Jesus, I conclude that illness, and this includes mental illness, is not a part of the kingdom of God. So where is God in the midst of our suffering? Remember I asked, who is this God who stood in the ditch and watched my mother die? I really believe when that semi crossed four lanes of traffic and made contact with her vehicle, God's heart broke first. When Lazarus died, Jesus wept. When that cancerous cell divided the first time in my husband's chest, God grieved. He aches with us. He weeps with us. He grieves with us. He mourns with us. God lavishes his love on us, and he wants our love in return, our love wholeheartedly, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and he wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves by bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ. So I want to land on this question. How do we bear one another's burdens? I don't know if any of you ever had Dr. Daryl Aaron. He's a former professor of the Bible department. I quote him often. His advice on how do we bear one another's burdens, you show up and you shut up. I love that. You show up, you be present. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to give them advice. You don't have to make them feel better. All you have to do is show up and be present and say, I'm here. You can ask them, what do you need right now? Maybe they don't know the answer to that. And if that's the case, go back to step number one. Be present and be quiet. When I'm hurting, it does help to bring me a glass of cold water or a vanilla latte, which is my love language. Um, you can bring uh, your friend 
a comfort object, bring them their blanket or bring them their teddy bear or bring them a tissue to wipe away their tears, but one of the most important things you can bring them is laughter. Bring them laughter. Show them some funny TikToks. Show them a, a video on YouTube that you think is hilarious. Bring levity and laughter. One way to bear one another's burdens is to lift those burdens, and a good way to lift that burden is with levity and laughter. So carry your laughter with you. But I want to be really vulnerable with you on one thing, and this, I think, is really important. I made a grievous error a couple years ago, and I have... I don't regret much in my life, but I regret this. I failed a friend who was suffering from a mental illness because I took it upon myself to help manage her symptoms. Instead of encouraging her to get the best help possible, I tried to change me to accommodate her illness. In my attempts to love her and bear her burdens, I didn't challenge her to get the best possible help she needed, and I didn't support her towards better health, and now that she is gone, I regret it so deeply. If your friend is very sick, please help them find help. Sitting with them is good in the moment, and then help them find help. This is one of the best ways you can bear one another's burdens. Finally, and most important, pray for them and lay them down at the foot of the cross and intercede on their behalf. Sometimes praying for them with them can feel like you are imposing some spiritual expectation that they are going to now get better. There's a little bit of risk to pray with somebody about their mental illness, but it is, there is no risk in praying for them in your own prayer time. So pray for them by name, behind the scenes. And let's do that together now. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you with names of friends and loved ones who are hurting right now. They struggle with fear, sadness, numbness, panic, intrusive unwanted thoughts, and a brain that fights them and causes them heartache. Lord, please help us all to understand that illness is illness, including mental illness, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. Help us to begin to be agents that dismantle that stigma in the faith community and give us tools and resources to know how to bear one another's burdens. Help us do this to fulfill your law, O Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.